Welcome to the podcast of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where we feature our worship sermons. Listen again to past sermons from home, when you are traveling, or wherever you are. Listen in if you need a moment of reflection, inspiration, and love. Our second scripture reading today is from the book of Acts, which tells the story of how the early church began to take shape following Jesus' ascension. In today's chapter, we hear a story about Cornelius, a Roman centurion or soldier who loves God and is known to be a great guy, always helping others in need. His faith and heart for justice had captured God's attention. An angel visited him and said, send for the disciple Simon Peter. So off his friends went, and when they found him, they said, an angel directed Cornelius, a Roman soldier, but also a God worshiper and all around good guy, to summon you to his house to hear what you have to say. So Peter made his journey to Cornelius' home, where all of his loved ones were gathered. You see, this was a weird house party. It was considered forbidden for a Jew like Peter to associate or visit, break bread, and go into the home of outsiders. But luckily, God, who had visited Peter in a vision to help him see that a person could not really be an outsider at all. Cornelius, who was a Gentile, was thrilled that Peter had agreed and decided to come and join him, saying, now we're all here in God's presence, ready to listen to whatever God put on your heart to tell us. So what did he tell them? This brings us to verses 34 through 37, which I will read from the message translation of the gospel for you today. Peter fairly exploded with his good news. It's God's own truth. Nothing could be plainer. God plays no favorites. It makes no difference where you are or where you're from. If you want God and are ready to do as he says, the door is open. The message he sent to the children of Israel that through Jesus Christ, everything is being put together again, well, he's doing it everywhere and among everyone. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God around us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. So as you heard, I just returned from a two-week cross-cultural intensive to Chiapas, Mexico, as part of my requirements for my Master's in Divinity program. Chiapas is a southern state that borders Guatemala and is known for its diverse indigenous culture, natural beauty, delicious coffee, and Zapatista movement, which began in the 90s to advocate for the rights of the indigenous people who are among the most poor and marginalized in Mexico today. Our professors packed in a semester's worth of lectures plus readings and excursions in just two weeks. I ate so many tamales. I climbed Mayan pyramids, danced to marimba in the park, went to a memorial site of a senseless massacre and cried. I ran my fingers over brightly colored textiles. 
And I found myself praying more than I normally do in my day-to-day life here at home. Don't tell Ryan. (laughs) You see, life in rural Mexico for a privileged white American woman who doesn't speak Spanish, it's just not that comfortable. Clean, drinkable water is hard to find, and public toilets, let's just say, require a lot of thigh strength. (laughs) Spending hours in crowded vans, traveling winding roads with countless speed bumps and potholes meant car sickness just became part of my daily routine. And that was before Montezuma's revenge. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I said, lo siento, which means I'm sorry, a lot, for always struggling to understand the language. And it was hard to see the poverty that we saw everywhere. Children often carrying their infant siblings, alone, seemingly unsupervised by parents, would approach our group in the street, begging us to buy trinkets, while stray dogs circled around our feet. Every night, an indigenous boy, probably about six years old, as young as the kids who were here for Time for Young Disciples, would sit alone out on the curb not far from our hotel and sing at the top of his lungs for tips. I was far from home. And then there were the seminarians. That was a joke. Twenty or so beloved beings who I love and have the utmost respect for. But they're also, like me, humans with all their quirks, needs, and struggles. I am a proud extrovert, but spending every waking hour for 336 hours with my classmates, often on little sleep and struggling with stomach issues, could be exhausting. Sometimes loving them was tricky. Whenever I found myself feeling frustrated or overwhelmed, I leaned on the practice based on Thomas Merton's revelry at Fourth and Walnut, where he had the realization that there are no strangers. You may remember it. It's the practice that Ryan shared with us in worship and throughout Advent, where we look at others and we silently repeat the mantra to ourselves, I see you and I love you. I was doing this everywhere, in the taqueria, the van, the town square, or the market. At the very least, this practice often helped me stay chill. But it did more than that. It helped me stay present to the people around me, and later helped me create a mantra of my very own as a response to the thought patterns I was noticing that I was having during this trip. And that was, I see the world in you. The indigenous people of Chiapas lead such different lives than what I am accustomed to. For example, we visited the city of Chamula, where the indigenous locals wear big, almost hairy-looking woolen skirts and jackets, even when it's 90 degrees outside. Couples including those who are married, are not allowed to show affection in public. They largely live in poverty, selling on the street food and handmade goods. And they have limited access to what we would understand as education and healthcare. They face a lot of discrimination from the wider Mexican society. 
And amidst these challenges, they have maintained their cultural heritage with a strong sense of community interdependence. They are deeply religious and practice their own unique or what's called syncretized form of Catholicism, which combines Mayan religious practices and Christian symbols and beliefs. I had the opportunity to visit their church, which to me was an enchanting and weird and challenging experience all at once. The outside looked like a traditional Mexican church, but the inside was a different story. The stone floors were covered in pine needles like a forest, and around the periphery of the room were thousands of candles surrounded by hundreds of statues of saints, some who I'd never heard of, enshrined in colorful textiles and fresh flowers. At the front, front and center actually, was Saint John the Baptist, and then also Jesus Christ and Mary, or Our Lady of Guadalupe. Above hung sweeping banners of colorful fabric, and families sat in clusters on the floor, and they were whispering words of healing around one another with a hundred candles in front of them adhered to the floor with wax. Yes, it was definitely a fire hazard, <laughs> especially with all the pine needles. Sometimes as part, of their, as part of their practice, the families would sacrifice a live chicken. And I did see that happen. As a vegetarian, it was a lot. <laughs> They would also drink moonshine called posh mixed with Coca-Cola, all part of their spiritual practice. Incense billowed thickly through the air and music from an accordion and guitar hummed. Being in the room wrapped me up in mystery and it felt amazing and complicated. Looking at the people of this city, it was tempting to think that their life is insular superstitious, simple. It could be tempting to judge them or to think like the author of our reading from Deuteronomy. The one that says that we read today, believing in one God means following the law to destroy the altars, sacred stones, and idols of other traditions. So I started looking to them and thinking instead, I see the world in you to soften my own gaze. Before I went to divinity school, I usually avoided Deuteronomy. After all, it is a not-so-fun book of laws. And today's reading is a good example. It can leave us feeling several ways, like the God of the Hebrew Bible is violent and controlling, or that it's wrong, just simply wrong, to worship amidst, strine, uh, amidst, sorry, amidst shrines, carved objects, idols, or anything that to us seems non-biblical. But it's important to understand the ancient Israelite people who wrote Deuteronomy were deeply concerned with establishing and preserving their ways of life. It was not just a matter of honoring God, but of communal survival. They were the marginalized group, facing very real threats to their safety under the colonizers of their time and their location. You could say that the Israelites were like the original Mayans. You see, the Spanish conquest of the Mayan people, which took place in the 16th century, 
was a violent and brutal period. The Spanish came to claim the land and its resources. The Mayan people who had developed their own identity, government, writing, and religion were no match for the superior weapons of the Spanish who used ruthless tactics like enslavement and genocide. For those who survived, the Spanish sought to convert the indigenous people to Christianity, often using force and destroying their temples and sacred sites. They have lived a life of marginalization at the hands of colonial oppression ever since. So the complicated mix of Mayan and Christian beliefs I witnessed at the church in Shamula follows generations and generations and generations of people working to protect the God of their understanding under forces that seek to erase their beliefs, practices, and culture altogether. In the days that followed, we ventured on another excursion to the Institute for Intercultural Studies and Research to hear a talk from a Mayan Christian theologian in residence, and his name was Petul. The Institute was founded by a group of researchers and educators who were interested in studying the impact of globalization, remember Coca-Cola, on indigenous peoples in southern Mexico. Their goal is to build solidarity and dialogue between cultures in the region and to establish friendship among groups, finding common ground through what they call heart healing projects. As we have learned, Christians in Mexico denied and in many cases destructed Mayan belief. But this institute seeks to uncover Mayan's lost identity. Petul had so much deep wisdom to share with us. His talk, a lecture, actually felt more like a sermon. And so during his talk, I took furious notes, and I'm so glad I did so that I could share some of them with you today. So as I read these words, I invite you to close your eyes. Really, close your eyes, and take a deep breath and listen with the ear of your heart. Mother Earth received you when you were born. God inhabits all living things. Everything has spirit. God is not only in the temples, but in the people. And God tells us about ourselves through the living elements around us. Our time on this earth is for God to be manifest more fully. We are to be gardeners, defenders, and work from the heart. Mayan theology is cultivated by the community, not the pastor or the theologian. When we plant corn, experience joy, give birth, we experience God. We are the midwives of our own theology and our spirituality is born out of community. Western religion turns in and is very heady, often disregarding the body. But to touch the heart of God and to hear the heart of all that lives, we must embody our faith and live it in community. 
the cosmovision of the Maya people can be enriched by Christ. Mayan and Christian spirituality can bring together the kingdom of God and its abundance of life. I invite you to open your eyes. Some pretty good theology, if you ask me. Patul also told us about an important mantra in their indigenous language, which is featured in the photo on the front of your bulletin today. You can find it. You might have to, it's like a Where's Waldo situation. It's hard to find in there, but you can find it. <laughs> and it's uh, in their indigenous language, and I'm probably pronouncing this incorrectly. Ik el ti muk. Ik el ti muk, which means I see the greatness. There are so many mantras like this across the world. I see you and I love you. I see the world in you. I see the greatness. Shalom, peace. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Namaste, the light within me honors the light within you. Thomas Merton wasn't the only saint to experience an embodiment of Christ's love for others. Sages and mystics and regular old people have touched the heart of God throughout human existence. English mystic Carol Houselander experienced Christ in the faces of the people around her while riding the subway. She said of her experience, Christ is everywhere. In Christ, every kind of life has meaning and has an influence on every other kind of life. The realization of our oneness in Christ is the only cure, the only cure for human loneliness. Author and founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation, Father Richard Rohr, touches on this important question about Carol's experience. Who is this Christ that Houselander saw permeating from the faces of all of her fellow passengers? Christ for her was clearly not only the Jesus of Nazareth, but something much more immense, even cosmic in its significance. Rohr believes this vision once encountered has power to radically alter what we believe and how we see others, how we relate to them, and our sense of how big God might be, and our understanding of what the Creator is doing in our world. When the Apostle Peter first joins Cornelius and his friends at this weird party, he confesses that the only reason he actually agreed to ever go to the party with the Gentiles is from verse 28. God has shown me that I could never call a person impure or unclean. For this reason, when you sent for me, I came without objection. And Peter proceeds to tell them the good news from the Common English Bible translation. I really am learning that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over the other, Rather, in every nation, whoever worships him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
Following this statement, he witnessed to them about Christ's potential for restoring the lives of all people. As Peter was speaking, the message translation tells us the believing Jews who had come to the party with Peter actually could not believe it. They couldn't believe that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on outsider Gentiles. But there it was. So Peter baptized Cornelius and his people and kept partying with them for a while. And you know what happened next in chapter 11? When Peter returned to his friends, they freaked out. They said, what do you think you're doing rubbing shoulders with that crowd, eating what is prohibited and ruining our good name? The early followers of Jesus clung to their laws because they served an important purpose. They were a minority group within an already minority Jewish class. They, like the original writers of Deuteronomy, had much to fear. Scholar William H. Willimon invites us to wonder about Peter's assertion that God shows no partiality. He says, can we hear what an upsetting, exciting, world-reversing word this must have been to those whose faith was based on assumptions of partiality, who had suffered in spite of and because of this partiality, yet they still believed It was not an easy word to hear. And I think we can all acknowledge here in this room, a couple thousand years later, it's still not an easy word to hear. The feared outsider, the unknown other, can threaten our constructs, our ideas of what is safe, good, and right. And let's just be honest, Other people who are different than us, especially those we disagree with, can just be hard to love. It can feel impossible to see and love those people, to wish peace upon them or attest to their greatness. God doesn't show partiality, but we certainly do. Archbishop Desmond Tutu is famous for saying bluntly, God is not a Christian, nor a Jew, nor a Muslim, or Hindu. Tutu goes on to explain, it doesn't matter where we worship or what we call God. There's only one interdependent human family. We are born for goodness, to love, free of prejudice, all of us without exception. There is a greater commonality in our belief systems than we tend to credit. A golden thread expressed in the maxim that one should treat others as one would like others to treat oneself. I don't believe in the notion of opposing belief systems, he says. It would be more accurate to say that human beings have a long history of rationalizing acts of inhumanity on the basis of their own interpretations of the will of God. I think that's what Petul, drawing from Mayan and Christian theology, wanted us to hear. To touch the heart of God, 
We must see God in everyone and in everything. Whether that's the stone in the river, animals of our land, the person sitting next to you at church, or the foreigner whose practices, beliefs, and values are weird or hard to understand. When we stay in our heads and keep to ourselves, it's easy to fall into the trap of seeing our way of living and following God as best. But if Peter and Cornelius have anything to teach us, it's about the value of encountering the life of the stranger who God shows us is not a stranger at all. Like Petul said, when you live out and practice your theology up close with God's creation and people, it's hard not to see the image of God within them. It's hard not to see the world in them and to love them. Amen. We thank you for listening to a worship episode from Fairmount Presbyterian Church. Revisit this podcast site weekly for new worship episodes. Have a beautiful and blessed day.